This is the sound of hot air. Yes, yes, yes. Here is yet more hot air. And this week, my guest is Rebecca. And you may know Rebecca for her dark techno and her association with Chris Liebing's legendary CLR crew in Berlin. But when I think of Rebecca, I think of thoughtfulness and self-reflection. She's been on an interesting psychological journey. And so I wanted to talk to her about some of her battles, like her own shame about her previous drug use and the difficulty of raising herself to DJ once she got clean. And also, when she first pitched up to Berlin and had to face down quite a few haters and doubters, how her mindset and her approach to life has changed throughout all of this is an interesting story. Uh, and also how this is reflected in her creative output. Uh, she just put an album out on Soma. Uh, so we talk a bit about where her mind was in making that. Uh, but first, some music. Uh, and this coming in is my personal fave Rebecca track. Uh, also, it came out on Soma actually a couple of years ago. This is Confined Heart. Creepy. Thank you. 
You're someone that I know from the past, and of all the DJs I've met, you're probably the one that has the most focus about what to do outside of the creative sphere in order to empower you to succeed in the creative sphere. So, I, I, But you weren't always so focused. Um, tell me about the moment, if there was one moment, where you decided to take control. Um, I think it, it was, I, I was so, for many years, I was so hung up on this whole perfection thing. And looking back now, it's kind of ironic because, you know, that I did so many, I made so many choices that kind of led me away and sabotaged any kind of perfection I was kind of trying to achieve in a way. And, you know, I partied hard, um, you know, I took loads of drugs and I drank loads and, you know, I, I partied with the best of them, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have really any regrets. Like my only regret is, is kind of letting it go on so long. You know, and, the, and at the point when the, you know, I was frustrated with my DJing career, my DJing career, and I can laugh at it now because there really wasn't a career. I had a, an early 2000s career of DJing house. And, you know, I was quite conceited at that point. You know, it's, it's usual, like kind of um, big ego, but low self-esteem. And I really thought it, didn't, it wasn't going to end. I thought, oh, I've made it now, like playing in a few clubs in Brighton and, and London, I had a couple of residencies. And I really didn't think it was going to end. And I missed the boat when everyone was moving from just being a DJ to being a producer. And I was like, I don't want to produce music. You know, I, I want to be a DJ. You know, I want to be a good DJ. And that was my main focus. And it took me a long while. And the end of that kind of small part of um, what I was doing to end um, for me to, to then realize actually you know, you have got to work a little bit harder. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that you just haven't done. But was there a moment where you thought, right, this has got to change? What yeah. particularly drug fuels come down? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hit rock bottom for, for sure. You know, I, I hit that quite a few times. I hit it once and then I managed to, to get clean for, um, for about 12 weeks and in that 12 week period it I did some counseling around it and it gave me I don't know it cleared a lot of stuff up but it didn't it didn't stop me from taking drugs or drink it just kind of made me um be able to take drugs and drink without feeling so guilty about it <laughs> which, <laughs> is a really, which is a really dangerous place to be so then I was off and running for another like two and a half years three years and and then it was just you know I just settled into this kind of obliteration period and and it like I and I, and I say this and it's it sounds probably worse than it was like with the the, the actual drug taking, you know, I wasn't taking drugs every day. I wasn't waking up and sprinkling it on my, you know, sprinkling cocaine <laughs> on my cornflakes like maybe others have. But it was, you know, it's, it's about how it makes you feel. And, um, you know, I'd be doing this every weekend and I, I was just desperately lonely for those per that period of time. And I, yeah, I, I just, I, I hit rock bottom, but I just didn't re even know that I hit rock bottom. And it's, 
it, I was, you know, quite depressed. I was really unhappy with what I was doing. I was happy, unhappy with where I was at and in the situation I was. And I, I lost all it. I wasn't empowered at all. I, I gave up everything, basically. And, um, yeah, I was pretty suicidal in the end. And then I started, um, you know, surrounding myself with other people that were struggling as well to get some recovery and and in a way in the beginning I just got the recovery part I just did it because to please my boyfriend I was like yeah well you know if he if he sees that I'm you know trying to sort this problem out um you know might ease off and let me carry on doing what I want to do which is obviously to take more drugs and (laughs) (laughs) and sabotage myself even more but then at some point something changed and I was like actually I had like a glimmer of hope like I met people that, that had the same if not worse problems and it gave me hope and I was like actually there's a way out of this so it was a realization of you know I sat I remember sitting down I would sit down and I'd be like okay can you not DJ and do music without taking drugs you know is there a way to do this like why are are the two so close together and I'd just caused I just formed a habit you know like it was you know the one the partying and the DJing and the music all was in one place so I had to learn how to separate those but I wanted it you know I wanted to do I wanted to carry on with the music and I had to learn how like realize why I loved it and relearn um, the tools to do that so it was like a, a light bulb moment and but I had to prioritize what came first and what came first was sorting myself out <laughs> and and once you and once you'd sorted yourself out in a musical sense where you were able to perform without getting on it did yeah. that lead to a whole load of other things that you were sorting out in your life in general yeah i mean it was it was a, an amazing feeling like the first gig that i did without any like no shots of alcohol no sambuca no you know like no lines of cocaine after my set it was really um I think it was a Sunday and I'd gone and done the gig yes I was nervous yes it was you know it was kind of hard work but um, I managed it and I went to sleep afterwards and I woke up on a Sunday and I just sat there and I was like mm, you know what I can do this this isn't that hard and that gave me the freedom and then I think from that moment when I got freedom from that choice that was when it was like everything was available and open and you know like I could achieve what I wanted to achieve but yes I had to do some work on myself (laughs) yeah I mean I've seen your bookshelf like that is someone who has done work on themselves you know what were the key what were the key things that the key self-help things that you learned on that journey and what did you implement um, I think to get rid of the perfectionism, you know, like to, to, to stop being perfect. I don't want to be perfect, you know, that's what makes me who I am and, and in the DJ sense that that allows me to be freer and stop being hard on myself as well. If you're having an off day, you know, like it's not the end of the world, you know, people can be tired, you can be... Hungry is a good one. Hangry, <laughs> which is like a new term that I keep hearing. Um, and 
you know, it's okay to be lonely sometimes, but just not to be really hard on myself. And I was so hard, it, it's, it's, it's almost heartbreaking, you know, like how I would treat myself. And you realize that how you treat yourself is how you treat other people. And, you know, I didn't treat people very well because I had this, such a high, um, like a high measurement for myself that every, no one else had a, like a chance really. So easing up on myself actually allowed me to ease up on everybody else and um, just to to let things go a little bit easier. Yeah, um, I mean, a, <laughs> a, big, a big moment for me in self-reflection was realising that progress didn't necessarily correlate with your own performance, with however well you were in your bubble. Yeah, there's things you've got to do, but ultimately it's other people, it's engaging with a marketplace, it's engaging with, it, with some sort of narrative to move yourself forward. Yeah, did you find that, that it was just less about you? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I think so, but it's a, it's still a, like an ongoing battle, you know. Like as an as an artist, you you know you're constantly thinking about how people are perceiving you, and but you you got to realise that you don't have any control over that, and it you know you can still get wrapped up in those small details. You know, we it it, it unfortunately it is when you're put out there, and then you know you do get some you garner some success then. It is, uh, it is, it is hard, but I don't know. I just like to just try and live in the moment and not think about too much about the past or the future. Just be now and, and be present and uh, present and not worry about, you know, this is going to get me here or this is going to have this effect because you don't have that control. So. Although you can wrestle that kind of control of the production process, say, if you want. So you don't strike me as someone who would really like deferring to an engineer. Do you do, you do everything from your, yourself from the beginning? Mix it all down, compose it, everything? Yeah, <laughs> you know that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was, I, I started out working with engineers and I, I found it really difficult to translate my ideas, like how uh, they that translated it was all like when it came back, I was like, no, this isn't quite what I meant, and this isn't really what the sound that I want. So at that point, I had to learn it myself. I had to do it myself, and and I'm also quite because of that experience, I'm quite close to closed off to working with other people. I find it really difficult when people are like, oh, we we can do some collaboration. And it's like, oh, I just, <laughs> I kind of dread it in a way. Like I've done some collaborations and it's been fun. Um, but yeah, I have got more of a control over how I want it to sound if I do it myself. And mixing, I did send one track like years and years and years ago to my friend to mix down. And again, it came back something else. I was like, oh, this isn't the how I wanted it to sound. So I, you know, I have to do that part myself. So it's no, there's no easy way at all. <laughs> but I guess, I guess what I'm driving at here is that you've described to me a, a journey where you've had points where you intensely got yourself together, created that bubble, empowered yourself, and, that, and then you've moved a bit more towards lightening up, let's say, for want of a, yeah. a more you know, scientific phrase. Is it maybe time to look at the production process and have that reflect 
more where you are now, i.e. maybe opening it out and collaborating more? Mm. I'm not so sure because the, I still feel like I'm on this journey by myself as an artist and, you know, just finishing the album and, and having like this whole body of work to reflect on, it, it excites me to know that I'm going to kind of now see where the, the weaknesses are in that and then move on and, and improve even more and it's just this journey. So now I'm going to play the title track from said album. This is Fear Paralysis and I think it's a quintessentially Rebecca kind of track. It's certainly the sort of thing that springs to mind uh, when I think of her DJ sound anyway. It's dark, it's banging, but it's got a kind of a twisted ambience creeping in there as well.
So this album, tell me what the creative rationale was. What story are you telling? It was, it was some music that came about when I, when CLR, which was the label I was on, started breaking down and I was kind of aware of it. I wasn't happy about it. And I just was really unsure of like where I was going and what I was doing. I was still making like club tracks, but I kind of felt a bit jaded just making like bangers. And then I started making these other tracks and it started showing me that maybe I wanted to explore this other area again. And it felt like I was returning back to some of my early productions. So it was a return back to when I started making music and it was probably the first music I made after like stopping taking drugs and having all this freedom. So it kind of reminded me of coming back to that period. It's like I needed to reset myself. So from this point of view, then I made all this other music and as the process went on, I ended up with like 10 three minute sketches and I added in a few more tracks here and there. And then I spent, sat on that for about six months, came back to it, then I wanted to do the, mix, the, the arrangements. And my idea was to do all of it in one go so that each section would be completed, then I'd have a break, do some other stuff, and then move on to the next part. And that just kept everything really fresh. So you arrange everything. So it took me like six weeks and I did all the arrangements of um, the album tracks. Then another break, coming back, okay, we're gonna do all the mix downs now. And it was just like leading up to the deadline of when it needed to be submitted for mastering. And it's really weird now, like uh, the, when I listen back to the music, it, it doesn't touch me as much as it did then. It's like uh, all these feelings that I had, um, it is this like moment in time and I understand it now, but when I listen back now, I, I'm not connected to it. it wow. It's really, really that bizarre. That must have been pretty horrible. <laughs> if you were having a bad day that day, like, did you think, oh God, this is actually a bit rubbish? Did you um, ever have any of those moments? <laughs> no, because I just let it, let it, you know, I obviously battled with some of them, but um, I just let it, be what it was meant to be and it was more about the melodies or the feeling or the vibe of what I was trying to get out and I just allowed it to be whatever it wanted to be rather than trying to force it and a lot of time with the the more club orientated bangers you're kind of forcing it to a certain way because you know that it has to fit currently with what people are playing and you know it, with an album it's different because you just you know, you make it, if it sounds shit, it sounds shit, but you know, you, at least you were kind of free with it. Yeah. And it doesn't have to, like, you're also not restricted with, it has to fit on this EP or this LP. So there was less pressure in and that I, sense. I know in the past you've, you've used visuals quite a lot to inform your creativity, like walking around industrial Birmingham, <laughs> look at, looking at factories <laughs> and, and then knocking out industrial sounding music. Was there anything like that that you did with the album? Um, no, but not this time actually. I didn't do the, I didn't do it more of the visual side of things, but I did listen to a lot more like down tempo stuff. So I was listening to like Boards of Canada, um, some early Aphex Twin stuff, even though it's not really 
inspired by that, but it, it, it definitely put me into a different headspace to be able to create different music. And, and I wouldn't even say that the music, you know, I don't want to put it into the same category, it's not, not even there, but I think it was, you know, it gave me a little bit more freedom. And are you hoping with, with EPs to, to have the license to move away from club bangers as well? Yeah, I like that. I've already got another six or seven tracks ready for, for the autumn. And it, it was really nice to come back to the music. And, but again, some of them are even more experimental. Like some of them actually could be on the album now, but I kind of wanted to hold them back because they are recent uh, recent productions so yeah I think it's just now it's about getting a balance I spoke to an artist over the last weekend yeah last weekend and he said that you know you can measure a, an artist by the albums that they do it's not the EPs which is quite an interesting take. Even in this day and age I mean that's a pretty brave <laughs> statement not many people are making albums true or maybe on the surface, like maybe on the commercial level, they're not. But there's definitely a lot, lot of underground artists. I think are still, are still feeling the need to make an album. And I don't know. I, I was kind of really torn with albums. You know, as as a DJ, you, you know, I like to, with techno albums especially. You know, I'm looking for bangers and stuff to play, and you know, like want to have these amazing records in in the set but I didn't really appreciate the albums I was listening to from a techno point of view so it's kind of it's like I'm you know again be careful what you judge because <laughs> you'll end up having to eat your words and stuff but I I don't know I appreciate it more now and I appreciate I appreciate the artists that do take the risks and want to do something different and, and it is another creative outlet and you can't just make club EPs. And also I think a lot, like, I don't want to name any names, but there's still a lot of artists out there, in inverted commas, that aren't producing their own music. Yeah, and they're nowhere near it. Like, they, they, like, they've got a ghostwriter. Exactly. They're not even sitting with a producer. They're just sending it away. Oh, let's have it sound like this. Yeah. Heck of a lot. And if you and you can tell by how busy their DJ schedules are and the correlation with all of the music that comes out six months later, you think, hang on a minute, <laughs> when the hell did they make all of that? Answer, they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> you have enough conversations like this when the microphones aren't on anyway. You get to find out the names of their ghostwriters <laughs> and you start to see all the links. Oh, so that's why it all sounds the same. Yeah. Ah, this business we're in. Yeah, um, I mean, that's just an easy way. And I think that for me, that didn't work. I didn't want to go that route. You know, I love, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love DJing and I love performing. And that is my main focus most of the time. And, you know, I, I was off record to say, you know, I, if I didn't have to produce, you know, maybe I wouldn't. But actually now with with this album and this process and and how you can channel feelings it's always a, it's always the same it's feelings and thoughts and visuals and 
you know, like it, it's maybe, maybe it is something to be treasured. You know, we have to be creative. You know, we're, we're kind of destined to be these creative creatures. You know, why sell yourself short? Yeah. So. Uh, onto the CLR time that you had. So when I knew you in Birmingham, you could tell that you, you were, you know, you were kind of outgrowing the place, not necessarily because it was Birmingham's fault. It was just that you were deciding that you were going places. But interestingly, when I read your Accelerator article recently, you were talking about that voice in your head saying, you're not good enough, etc. that that was a battle. So in Birmingham, that probably wasn't a battle. You were quite assured. But when you actually went places and got in the, <laughs> got in the CLR crew and ended up in Berlin, how was your mind then? Did you feel like you belonged? not uh, in the beginning it, everything was really new and I was it was like kind of watching things unfold which was a really nice it was a really nice period just just as I was moving to Berlin from Birmingham and but then yeah when I got there it, it was just being kind of like thrown into this kind of like thrown into the arena and then it's like okay is this going to work is it not going to work what's going on and yeah it was a bit of a, a bit of a shock really and, you know, the ego part of me was like, well, you've done it. This is what you wanted to do to achieve, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but then, you know, not far afterwards, the other thought process is like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm a fraud. And this whole, you know, they're going to find out. So actually. there was a constant battle like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, and, and it didn't help that, you know, for the, for the first couple of years, no, for the first year, I just thought that like they didn't really like my my colleagues on the label they just didn't like me and it wasn't it's just they couldn't understand my accent <laughs> they couldn't understand the brummy accent unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so learning german helped open a few doors i assume yeah and and i had to change like my my accent a little bit so i had to be a little bit more english and, prim and proper yeah uh, my <laughs> private school my couple of years at private school helped and uh, <laughs> so yeah I had to change that and they you know and, it, and it's really weird the, the people that off the label that I didn't speak to that much in the first year um, ended up being and they still are like my you know I'm very fond of those people and I still stay in touch with those people and it's yeah it, it took a little while with the Germans <laughs> <laughs> but but no but I really you know I, I've really enjoyed the time and I enjoyed the tours and you know that's probably why I was a little bit you know a bit gutted when it ended because um yeah I thought we had a little bit more mileage to go with it I thought the the idea and the nights and the parties you know it was some uh, some amazing things happened you know and it was it was a shame that it came to an end but I, I totally understand why and you know and it's it's a new chapter and you know as, as a human being I don't really like change so much but it challenges you and you can grow from it um, sink or swim scenario yeah. it puts you in different creative directions surely exactly. you'd have found that from the shot so what was the why um, I think it was just with with Chris he just he kind of wanted to move on and he wanted to do you know explore different avenues himself and 
I totally get that because I have I have the same feeling with decoy you know I run decoy records with with another guy and at some point I you know I was itching to do something else and with Chris it was the same thing and you know he wanted to kind of move away from the really the niche label of CLR and and you know the niche market of that and then move into a different direction and he wasn't sure whether and, and also he wanted to make an album which his album is coming out and he never found the freedom to do that because he had so much pressure from the label and you know it was a lot and, and running decoy I get that you know trying to please the artist and making sure everything's running properly and you know so many times I've sign something and then it's not coming out for two years and it's you know you feel bad about that and you have to speak to artists and it's a lot of pressure you're very accountable exactly well, if, if you choose to be but if you choose to be polite and decent and yeah. you're very accountable to your artists and it happens a lot where someone like chris would build up a label and suddenly creatively they can't go anywhere with it because the last few records sold thousands uh, they, you know, there isn't even the option really to, to go backwards and be a bit more underground again. It, yeah. you know, it's difficult. I'm sure he battled with that. Yeah, I think he did. And um, well, I don't know, um, but I think for him it was the right decision. And whenever I see him now, he's really happy and he's doing what he wants to do. And that's, you know, I'm happy about that. And you've been <laughs> you've been pretty busy since. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not being an Armageddon moment. Right? No. And, and in the end, it might well be the best, the best for your positioning in the marketplace because you're, you're away from CLR. You can define yourself even more. Yeah, maybe. I just, um, like I said, I like just, just like to see what happens. You know, I just do what I do and um, play the music that I like to play, create the music that I create and like we said earlier, I have no control about how it's perceived or how I'm going to be positioned and what artists I should be playing with. And we don't have any real control. The, the people that follow you, your music dictate that. So um, I'm pretty open. You know, as long as I, you know, I'm not playing with Deep House guys, because that's definitely not going to work. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we'll see. Seeing as she mentioned her label, Decoy, gives me a good excuse to play this. This is Jake Conlon, Groke 13, which came out on Decoy a few years ago. I just love the bonkers energy of it. In fact, the whole EP that this comes from, the Danica EP, it's called, it's just manically brilliant. I could well recommend it. Hold on to your hats.
So I remember in the early days when you were in Berlin, I saw a couple of interviews. I just thought, oh God, just kind of like, oh, so you're a woman. How is that working out for you? <laughs> it was that sort of questioning. Like, have you noticed that an improve? Have you noticed an improvement in the journalism and a better understanding of who you are as an artist? Yeah, I think so. But I've, I've had, I haven't had so much press. Re really, like the press side of things have been pretty, pretty quiet. You know, like we did our interview, and you know, like I really like these kind of interviews, which is a little bit deeper um, than the usual ones. But but you still get those questions; they still come up, uh, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but the but there's a lot of talk at the moment. You know, the last couple of years about feminism, and and you know, there's lots of female artists. Unfortunately, not so many on the techno scene, lots in the house scene. Um, but, you know, things are changing, more are coming through. And, yeah, I don't want to be the, like a spokesperson for gender issues. It's like, I don't, I don't have, like, a, like I said, I'm kind of trying to be really spiritual and not, not be too judgmental either way. You know, and, and it's you know you can't run, you can't want equality, and then and then run an all girl lineup. You know, like that doesn't work either. Yeah. So I'm really like I'm really you know like maybe I'm on the fence a little bit with it, but um, but I'm very aware of you know doing elements parties like of trying to get more of a ratio of a female to male artist. You know, and 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 to incorporate that more like a, looking at doing like a, a party at, in at ADE and then it was the the list of artists that the club kind of gave me that they were interested in were, were all guys and I was like well we you know have to put some girls in as well just because it's not it I just see you know I, I am very aware of that you know you see all these big lineups um like in London and it's just like eight guys and it, you know, it should be a bit more balanced because there is a lot, lot more female artists working and doing stuff. Um, but I mean, so, 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 if you would you would you go as far as to say that you would positively discriminate and and put a woman DJ on a lineup um, because you know there's five other guys on there? Do you think it's worth doing that? I look at the artists for variety. You know, for a lineup. I'm more interested in having uh, like a, more of a versatile lineup than you know for for that reason. And there's a couple of female artists that I really really like, and they play more electro. And I'm looking at those artists to come in and bring something different to a lineup, rather than just putting on a DJ for the sake of D like it, whether it's male or female. So I'm more uh, like more about that yeah and you're not going to make a song and dance about it either way it's no no um but yeah but like i said i'm not i'm not too aware and i'm not i don't know i've, I've just i've been on the one side and and you know i've experienced a lot of crap throughout the years when you know it is a male-dominated industry and it, it's you know, it does have an effect on women's self-confidence and 
their limitations of what they can achieve. And I think we do have to change those perceptions. But then on the other side, I've been, it, it's like an extreme, you know, the, it could be so extreme, like calling out promoters and giving them shit on, online. And I don't know whether I'm really down with that either. It seems arcane to be so confrontational in 2017. Yeah. It's not like women don't have the vote. So the time to argue is when I think, I think the time to argue strongly and be very, very aggressive about issues like this has passed. I think it's a bit of a waste of headspace perpetuated by social media as well, because yeah. that, that multiplies it all. To, to really make anything a gender issue in music. Because there are a hell of a lot of people who are quite open-minded. They're, yeah. they're open-minded enough to take drugs for starters, to break the law every weekend. That's one thing. I think most people who are in crowds of house and techno, they're pretty left-wing in their beliefs. So I, I, I just feel it's, it, it's more often than not isn't something that needs to be said that much out loud. Just most of us are on some kind of an understanding, I think. Yeah, I like, like I said, it's changed a lot and it is changing and there's a, the, 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 you know, the, the media is definitely fronting this movement right now. So there's a lot of talk about it and I think it's a good thing. I think it the discussion of, of it has to be good, but the, but it, it's... The tone should be moderate. Yeah, perhaps. And, you know, like, I, I have my, my, you know, annoyances. You know, I, I, I get annoyed when, you know, you get, as a female artist, you only get kind of... Um, what's the word? I've lost all my words now. You only get compared to other female artists. And that female artist is perhaps completely different from how you play or make music. And it's yeah. really, that frustrates me. It's like, well, why don't you compare me to a male artist yeah. who does exactly the same, you know, like let's have a bit of a better comparison. Um, it's unpaid journalists a lot of the time with not much time just knocking out <laughs> crap, I think. <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. I don't yeah. think it's necessarily an overt prejudice. It's like... It's accidental yeah. prejudice, if you like. And then there's also the the queen and the the queens of this and yes. the queens of that. Yes. And it's not it's like you know people are really passionate, and I don't want to knock people for for saying you know they they are really into it. And but it, or when you say the queen of this and that, it it entails that there's only positioning for one person, like for yeah, one that's, female. That's an at the interesting top. point. Yeah. So it's kind of, again, it's a limitation. There can only be one, and, um, and that's what we need to change. That there can be more, and, and it's also, as a, as a female, you then internalise it, and that also makes you a bit more competitive with the other females as well. And, um, and is that something that you'd, you'd really rather not be the case? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're my sisters, you know, like we, we have to change this mentality. And, it, you know, it's something that I worked on a lot. And the, you know, I have to see these females as my sisters. They're my, my techno sisters and they, they do, they have the same passion that I do. And I respect that. And 
you know, they're, they're just like versions of myself walking around yeah. <laughs> doing the same thing and buzzing off the same thing and having the same dream and isn't that a special thing? Um, I just, you know, I, I want to get to know them a little bit better and the girls that I have met in the scene that I have got to know better, it, it's really nice, you know, like if we talk about music production, talk about, you know, what synthesizers we like and what tunes we like with producers and, you know, it's very rare to, for me to have those conversations because I always surrounded myself with male DJs. So it was very rare for me to meet females and that was probably the problem as well. But it's been in a minority and, and not having access to that and then having the media and the fans put you up against each other and compare. So, you you know, it's, it's all of these things on top of one another that you then you know you can be quite dismissive and and it's like again back to you know how do you treat yourself and how do you respect yourself and then you can respect others yes well said uh, to be honest gender was a topic that i was dubious about covering beforehand because it can just be so darn cliche but it's refreshing to hear someone like rebecca tackling the issue sensibly without feeling the need to berate anyone about it but anyway, this is the end, and I'm going to leave you with the unusual ending of two consecutive tracks playing right through. They're tracks 11 and 12 from her album Fear Paralysis. First up is Code Black, which will be followed by Again. I wanted to hear them both in context, because for me, the best thing about the album is in the variety of the rhythm and how it constantly flicks between club bangers and then tracks that are altogether quite different uh, with broken beats and, and much lower tempos. That's not an easy thing to do, but she's done it very well. Uh, the album is an ambitious piece of work in my opinion and well worth a listen. I hope you agree.
Tear. 